Those really were things I saw on a small tube. Uh, and among them was Marshall Dillon and the Lone Ranger and Davy Crockett. And, and, and I, you know, I, I looked at them as sort of my heroes. And I occasionally went to movies and there were people like Audie Murphy that most of you have never heard of or John Wayne. And the thing about John Wayne is it didn't matter what role he was supposed to play. He was always the same John Wayne. Uh, well, Pilgrim, you're dead where you sit, you know. And it was just always the same. I also had sports heroes. Jim Brown, Sandy Koufax, Jerry West. You know, these were people that I said, okay, when I'm going to play these sports, I want to play it like them. Boy, was that a rude awakening when I couldn't. But I would have to say that growing up, and this is true not just for me, but dads, listen, it is true for you now. For at least the first 10 years of your children's lives, you are their heroes. You are the one that they look to. And it was true for me. It was my dad. Now, that rapidly changed somewhere between fifth grade and ninth grade. And it changed even quicker when I, he had to be my boss and I worked for him at his company. Because then he was a taskmaster, not dad. But in those first 10 years, I could honestly say I looked at my dad and there was a man of high integrity. Uh, there was a man who, was, who really believed in merit. In other words, if you work hard, you will earn. And, and he took us out of poverty through the skill he learned in World War II. And by no means was he perfect, but I would still say he was the most influential person for my life and I'm more like him probably than anybody else. Now, he's been dead for almost 30 years now. We need heroes to emulate. We're going to find them somewhere. And dads, if you are around your children for the first decades of their lives, understand they will be looking to you. And then somewhere they'll be finding, sometime along the line, they'll be finding their heroes in other places. It may be their peers, it may be certain teachers, it may be uh, some celebrities that they find, and it will begin to switch with them. I can trace my switch back between fifth and ninth grade uh, to what we call the junior high locker room. Uh, we had required gym every uh, five days a week, so we'd go and then we'd have a shower and, and our own lockers. And then the only way to get out of gym was a signed note from your parents. You know, please excuse Jim today from he's not feeling good. Signed, Jim's mom. Um, <clears throat> that didn't work very well. But that was the only way out. But it was during that time that people we would now call bullies were really the most influential people in the locker room. They would talk to you and share the things, and because they were a little more worldly wise than I did, I, I listened. I picked up everything that they were sharing. I learned more about dirty jokes in junior high locker room than anywhere else. I learned more about what they claimed to know about sex than anywhere else. I learned what it meant to be cool because I gained the attitude they had. They started talking to me about girls and the dating life they were on and how far they could go. My uh, sexual, my sex 101 immaturity class was learned in the locker room. And here's the truth. 
you find out who your heroes are and they begin to become a model for you. And once they become a model for you, they begin to shape your destiny. So sometime late in high school, I changed my models. I changed my hero. I become a follower of Jesus and I have this new model. And Jesus does not fit the mold of the junior high locker room, which I was getting really good at. And so as I follow him, I find that he is the one who begins to shape my destiny, and it is the same for you too. So we're in that portion now of Ephesians. We're in, we're, we're just getting into the fifth of, of all six chapters where Paul writes a letter to these Christians in this marvelous, uh, renowned city in Eph- called Ephesus in Turkey. And, and as he writes to them, it's about, uh, you know, uh, 60 AD. Uh, they've been Christians there for about eight years. He visited it first about eight years ago. And it's a rich and tra- it's a rich trade city on the coast. And, and the main attraction there, the Disneyland, you might say, it is a temple of Artemis. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. And Artemis, they believe they have an image of her, which is a meteorite that fell from the ground, uh, fell from the heavens, and they now have there. And so uh, you can't have that one, but they'll make one for you for just a little money. So you can have Artemis come to your home, and she is the goddess of fertility. Now, the worship of Artemis is a religion, but it's not only religion because a large part of the city's economy revolves around that. And you put the religion, the core values of a city, and and the economy together, and what you have is a culture. She's right in the middle. She's very influential in that culture. She is like a regional hero. And so to live in Ephesus, you might say you do this. You go along with the temple worship style and the temple practices to get along in the city. If you remove yourself from worshiping Artemis, you are seen as an outsider. Do you understand that heroes really do shape our destiny? And in the ancient culture, heroes abound. It might have been a certain general who won a battle. It might have been a Caesar, though they were pretty decrepit if you knew everything about them. It might have been a gladiator. It probably never would at that time been an entertainer like we worship today. But the hero would be acceptable not just to you, but to all of those around you. You say, I worship, or my hero is Osama bin Laden, and you don't fit in the United States. You would find one that everybody goes, oh, that's good. That's good. He was a great gladiator. He was a great general. You look for one that will, you know, sort of bring you along because you are uh, going along to get along. And so one model to emulate would have been Artemis herself because it it was uh, culturally correct. It was politically correct. She was a model that you could emulate and she would shape your destiny. Artemis worship meant sex for pleasure as much as you wanted and by, by honoring her through your worship, there would be prosperity and you would be known as a good Ephesian, a good citizen. Now, in our modern culture, we come forward and I think one of the great core values that we carry around is personal freedom. Our hero is freedom. We want to make our own choices without anybody uh, uh, condemning us for them. 
And if you do not agree with the choices I'm making, then you are judgmental and you, uh, you're just not tolerant and you are a hater. Now, one of the trends that is shaping our culture for about the last 25 years, we are living in the age of the Internet. And one of the, you know, it's not a secret anymore, but one of the things we talk little about is the, uh, the influence of online pornography on our culture. Though we have freedom to engage in it more easily, in pornography more easily and more privately than ever, we are also discovering that it is shaping the lives of those who engage in it, just like worshiping Artemis was shaping the lives of, of her time. There's a picture that we want to show you from Time magazine. <clears throat> the cover is uh, April 11th this year. It says, uh, porn, why young men who grew up with internet porn are becoming advocates of turning it off. And they're not doing it for moral reasons, they say. They're not doing it for religious reasons. They're still very secular people. They're doing it for some very personal reasons in terms of the effects or the results it's had on their lives. You see, internet pornography, because it's more private, people tend to do it more. And it is like being in the middle school locker room, but on steroids. And the main effect is the the inability to have healthy relationships. And thus there is dysfunction and destruction of marriages left and right for those, mainly men, who have found themselves not, the word's not addicted, but consumed by it. So now we go back again. Here are the Christians in Ephesus. They are following Jesus Christ, and so those that were involved in the idol trade of Artemis, in other words, they made idols to resemble her that you could have in your home to worship, they find themselves having to find a new career. If they were not idol makers, they still were making sacrifices to Artemis, and now they are no longer praying to her or have her image in their homes. They have a new hero, and that hero is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, whom we call the Christ. They have a new hero, and he is our heavenly father. And so this chapter 5 begins this way. It says in verse 1 and 2 in chapter 5, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. If you didn't hear the message that Doug Parks gave on it, he talked about the difference between imitation and being an imitator. And here it's saying, be as much like God as you discover him as you possibly can. There is going to be spiritual help for you. But this is the one. You are uh, leaving behind Artemis. You're leaving behind the popular culture here in Ephesus. And now you are going after God. That means if you are a follower of Jesus Christ in Ephesus... And I want to say this, and if you are a follower of Jesus Christ in the United States of America, maybe not as much as other places, if you follow Jesus Christ, consider yourself part of the counterculture, not the prevalent culture. You are different. You stand apart. And we have to do that without being judgmental. But when you're thinking of being in the counterculture, you still may be a good citizen, but you're an outsider. You don't want to cause any trouble, but you're attempting to get along without going along. You've turned your back on certain things. Your new hero is God the Father, as declared as Yahweh by the Jews. 
His spirit is not physical like an image of Artemis. He is spirit. He is righteous and not lustful. He is not a human being with human uh, emotions all the time. He is loving and just. And he cannot be bought with your sacrifices. You cannot do what you should do and expect God to always bless you. Each of these uh, each of these Christian families here in Ephesus is known by the neighbors as people who have had a change of heart, a change of life. They're no longer giving their sacrifices. They're not seen at the temple as much as they used to. They've turned their back on being a good Ephesian with good beliefs and practices. They now imitate God. And in their behavior, God now begins to call them his children. So that's what it's like on the outside. On the inside, we go to the, uh, to Paul's letter to the Philippians. And he tells them that on the inside, your attitude, not your behavior, but your attitude, which will eventually match your behavior, is to be the same as that of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying that as you look at Jesus, understand that the attitude he had of not considering himself, uh, 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 the position that was rightfully giving him, not holding onto it, but laying it aside. That is what we are to be, and it shows itself on the outside, that attitude, by considering others as important, or it even says more important, than, than our own uh, value. So their goodness, as these new Christians, probably just a couple hundred in a city of 350,000, it sets them apart. And the city knows them and considers them, you know, it, it highly values them because they're good people. But it's suspicious admiration. They are getting along, but they're not going along. They're really good people. And because you're around really good people, you feel judged, not because they're judging you, but they don't need to mention it. You compare yourselves to them. So one of the new attitudes that comes up as we go into the the rest of chapter 5 is holy sex. Yes, holy sex. Sex that honors God by God's design. And the idea here is there's several types of sex. There's Ephesian sex. There's the, the Artemis type of sex. And there's sex that honors God. So... As a background to this, we have to understand that God creates sex and he affirms it. He says in in Genesis chapter 1 to Adam and Eve, Now be fruitful and multiply and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, Cynics have said that's probably the only command we we faithfully obey. (laughs) And and, and so Ephesus, as as you look at Ephesus... uh, they're, they're doing it on the outside, but the Christians, uh, as they've made this change and walked away from the worship of Artemis, they, they get what it means, but on the inside and on the outside, they're still working it out. God, what do you call us for in terms of our sexual lives? So in the ancient world, there is marriage, but it's not about love. It's not about commitment. It's not about a covenant. It's about alliances and advancement in your life. You marry up. Oh, I did that. Guys, I hope you did too. But it's not, you know, that we will uh, be more successful. 
It's that we fall in love, and more than that, we are willing to make a lifelong commitment to others. Now, let's be honest. We understand even for Christians, it doesn't always work out that way. But that is what is presented by God. And so with that, with the Christian view and, and the Jewish view, sex comes with it. But sex that is uh, involved with a long-term, lifelong marriage commitment. And so Genesis chapter 2 describes the first married couple as ones who became one flesh with no shame in their, neck, in their nakedness. So God's design from creation has been to bring one man to one woman and together becoming one with children most often following, but not always. And the idea is that through their union, the uh, human population will increase and multiply. That's God's perspective. It wasn't the perspective of Ephesus. And so as we learn this, we see that there is a new practice that that God sets for us that is worthy of, of, of obeying and following. So here the people get involved with God's design, these Christians, Christ followers, and they attempt to live it. In Ephesus, the, the, the popular culture, they get involved with God's design and they say, we can do better. As good as sex is, it ought to be for anyone, with anyone, at any time. Marriage will advance me, but in this culture, sex pleases me. And I want to be pleased. And Artemis, the goddess, of, uh, the goddess of fertility, with her, sex is available at the temple, and we can call a, a sexual experience religious. My sex is a religious experience. Therefore, it must be okay. Sex was available with your slaves, with your employees, anybody willing, anybody unwilling, and you could even have secular uh, sex with unreligious prostitutes. But the Christians of Ephesus were encouraged to be the sexual counterculture, restoring God's original intent to what God had created. So let me read here what he says. I begin at verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 5. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. And then he says, this can be sure that those who follow these old practices, the way of Ephesus, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So this is the new way. And understand that just about every one of these terms, if you go back to its original meaning, they all are involving sex of one way or another. The coarse talk, uh, the joking and all of this. And except for this one called greed or a type of lust. Lust is a much bigger word because it includes greed here. So we understand it's not just our activities, but it's also our talk, our thoughts, and everything about us. I want to say this. I grew up in a moral home. A very good moral home. I remember my dad making me take back a few cents to the market basket, a, a market nearby, because they had given me too much change. And I thought, Dad, that's two sticks of bubble gum. Take it back. It's not yours. Oh, man. He didn't call me a thief, 
But he said, that's not yours. You don't merit that. Well, it was a very moral home, but it was not a Christian home. And so when I first read things like this, I realized that I was still in the middle school locker room mentality, and I was stunned at what God desires from me compared to what I was giving to him. So here I am late in high school, and I said, you know what? I've had six, seven years practicing. I'm getting really good at middle school locker room mentality. And now, as I finish high school and go to college, all this has to change? Yeah, if you're going to follow Christ. I was stunned at what God desired for me. My humor, my slang, my movies, my magazines, my conversations with my friends. All of these were to take on a different tone. Friends, it was hard. It's a lifelong process. The synapses in my brain, the the chemicals there have developed patterns which are going to take a long, long time to change. Maybe the rest of my life. I had learned the wrong approach and was now beginning to pick up the new approach and I had to change. As a new Christian, I find myself doing two things differently. The first is I begin to study about Jesus. I want to know who God is. I want to know because I say I'm a follower of Jesus, I better know who I'm following. And so it's not just that I pick up my Bible and read it all the time. I find myself in Bible studies. I find myself in worship services. I find myself exposed to those things which expose Jesus Christ to me. The second thing I do is I start hanging around friends who practice the behavior that that is mentioned Genesis through Revelation. Who, who had picked up sex by God's design, not sex by the junior high locker room. Can you imagine, therefore, going backwards as we read this, what the Christians in Ephesus feel when Paul teaches these things to them? They have to change, uh, they have to change also. Slowly, their attitudes and their actions begin to change just like mine. Now, the actions you can probably change a little bit quicker than the attitudes and the inner thoughts and the memories. But they all need to go together. It was no longer locker room talk with my friends. But it was developing friendships with other Christian youth, male and female. And I was on the path of imitating my heavenly father. That meant that my dating patterns had to change because I learned uh, immature dating 101 in the locker room. And one of the things that I did is I realized, you know what? Let's go out as groups. Let's spend time together as groups of people rather than me just dating uh, uh, one girl. Now, I, I want you to know if you're looking at this and you have some background, especially the sensitivity of if you've been exposed to uh, to pornography, if... Um, if you have anything this like this in your background, we can honestly say, can't we, that it's just not easy. What we have seen designated and designed for a permanent committed relationship has been compromised through the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3, but it's also been diluted from God's original intent ever since. So you'll find that most of the letters that Paul is writing to these uh, uh, to these Greek cultures and Roman cultures, they're a lot like Ephesus. In every one, he's saying, 
Your sexual morality needs to change permanently. And then he says, you have to consider yourself a part of the counterculture, not the popular culture. And no one's ever told him that before. So each generation since discovers that following Christ is not easy. It will take every human resource we have, but it'll take more. And the promise is that from chapter 1, one of these heavenly blessings from the spiritual places of which we have been given all of them, one of them is the Holy Spirit who brings to us a new activating nature uh, into our lives and gives us uh, uh, an empowerment where we can find ourselves with power to say no, power to, uh, to be involved in a different lifestyle than we were before. And it will take all of the human resources. But friends, I've tried the human resources and they didn't work. And it will take supernatural resources. And God offers those to you. And so in the external, we have that. But here's what's going to be happening to you from Romans 12, chapter 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. But be transformed, he says, by the renewing of your mind. We talk a lot about transformation here. And as we talk about it, we understand that it begins with the mind, a marvelous gland, or you might say a marvelous organ that we have. By the way, it's 80% fat. Did you know that? Does this head make me look fat? No. You have a fat head, which means I have a big brain, okay? It's doing its job. Uh, And so that is in the process of being transformed. And it begins with the mind, but it also can be worked out in our attitudes and in our behavior. Let me go back to that article again. What was slowly happening in one of the stories is a man who was first exposed exposed to his father's pornography at the age of five. Um, And then it just continued after that until he got deeper and deeper into it. And it talked about the levels that he got into uh, eventually, not just degrading himself, but degrading everyone around him. And they don't use the word uh, uh, addiction, but they do call it being hooked. They do call it being deeply influenced and, and so forth. The more that this person delved into pornography, the less able he was to have a constructive, long-term, committed relationship with any female. He married, but it broke up. What porn delivered was the opposite of what any self-respecting partner would want. More than that, he could not even look at his own daughter without sexual attitudes. That's mind control. As he is trying to build himself out of it, understand the difficulty he has. So, how does God help us? Well, we mentioned one of the things. We honestly believe that as we re-enter God's counterculture, he will empower us. And he will take the urges that he's given us, which are not bad, and he'll, you know, take them down the path, which is healthy. Because our bodies were created for sex. 
So to those who align with God's, uh, who want to align with God's divine plan in your sexual life, understand that with all of the desires you have sexually, there are at least two strategies that are mapped out, which I try to practice. And let me give you the divine strategies. This is your behavior, decisions that you can make with your will, because you know this is the right way to go. The first would be called uh, avoidance. Avoidance. There are some places in the world in which I'm uncomfortable. I do not like shopping for clothes with Barb. find it very difficult. When I'm around anywhere within 30 yards of the ladies' lingerie department, I begin to shake. So I just sort of stay away. Barb, here's the money. No, no, wait a minute. You have enough money. You're rich. So, Barb, you go and do it. You go do it yourself. And I'm, I'm just at a distance. But uh, though I'm uncomfortable there, there's other places which I have discovered I will not enter. And I've learned to say just no, but there has been some failure. So when I'm at an adult or near an adult entertainment store, I walk on by. It used to be there were adult movie theaters. I think they're all gone now. I don't know if any still exist because Internet porn is free. But I've learned to say no to that. And I'll tell you how. But the idea here is it doesn't say, oh, make a good effort. It doesn't say resist. It says flee. Flee means you get up and you run. Knowing the danger that is there, often from your backgrounds, often from your personal experience, or often from friends, you know, that have been trapped in it. You get up and you flee. And when I say flee, do you understand how hard it is? Why don't you take David as an example? King David. He could pick up a few small stones and run with courage towards Goliath. Slinging it and say, how dare you mock the armies of God whapping you down. And he ran to that challenge. Now he's middle-aged, not a young boy. And he sees Bathsheba and he hangs around. I can't leave. I can't leave. Does that tell you how hard it is to do some things and not so hard to do others? So it says flee. Do not linger. You flee or you fail. And I'm learning to become a good runner. The second thing is what we call transparency or accountability. And it's found in the second half of this passage. As I'm in Ephesians 5, let me just read it out for you, okay? I begin in verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out find out what pleases the Lord. And when I see that, I love the Living Bible translation. It says, find out what pleases the Lord, then do it. Isn't that simple? Find out what pleases the Lord, then do it. Uh, verse 11. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed to the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. 
So what is he saying here? The second strategy is, I guess, what we would call transparency or accountability, but it has to do with God's light and and, and the darkness of the world. So it deals with the light that is God's light. And, And here we're not talking about physical light and darkness. We're talking about spiritual light and darkness, which is moral light and darkness, where darkness is the absence of God and the morals that go along with it. Uh, and, and light is the presence of a holy God and, and the behavior and morals that go along with that. So we are to be like him and therefore we are to strive to be like him in moral perfection. Will we fail? I do. But I keep returning to the light. And I try not to return to the darkness. You will know that you are walking in the light You will know that you are living in the light because you see these things coming about. More goodness, more righteousness, and more truth. And it doesn't say more judgmentalism towards those who are not. But just more of God's purity inside of you. And I realize that in the counterculture, when we say today, sexual purity, how quaint. You must be over 120. Because no one believes that anymore. God's purity inside of us brings about the desires that will affect our outer behavior. The mind goes to the behavior. And the best way to be a child of the light is to let some of God's people into your life. That's called transparency. If you are struggling with these sorts of things, uh, the the one thing that social science has discovered is the last thing you want to do is if you are struggling with sexual purity... Do not join an accountability group. Wait a minute, we thought that was always the answer. No, it's been found to be not the answer. Because if you come to an accountability group once a week, twice a week, three times a week, once a month, nobody has walked with you through your life that week. And men lie. We do. We lie because we know we can't be held accountable. We say it's an accountability group, but it's not. So what are we told to do instead? We're told to find the very most trustworthy friends we can have. And we invite them into every facet of our lives. A woman I know discovered her husband was having phone sex because she read the charge account at the end of the month. And she said, what's this? Yikes. Was he embarrassed? It led to something good at the end, but he was humiliated. Is anybody invited into how you spend your money? What accounts there are? Um, This morning, five people knocked on my door before I said, please come in. It was an easy Sunday morning, okay? Often there's more than that. But but about five. There's certain people that know they never have to knock. In fact, they just consider whether there's a door there or not, it's open. And I can just come in on Jim. There's another thing, and that is uh, in my desk drawers. Go ahead. I mean, it's a mess. My desk, you've seen my office, the five of you that knocked on it this morning. Okay, it, it is a mess. But if you want to see what I've been reading, what I've been doing, what's, what's on my mind, what am I doing here at work? Come on, come and see. 
It's an open invitation. There's no locked drawers. There's no hidden books. You invite just a handful into what we call transparency. They demonstrate God's light better than anybody you know, and you say, come on in. And you understand that if you do fail, it's not judgmentalism, it's forgiveness like God has forgiven you, and you start again. Do you have people like that? Would you like me to recommend some? Has anybody asked you to be a person like that? That would be one of the highest honors, I think, any red-blooded man could ever receive. Happy Father's Day. Let's pray. Almighty God, we talk about this hard subject of light and darkness, counterculture versus uh, our perverse sexual culture. We understand that you gave a wonderful design and plan for our sexual beings. But we've compromised it. We've denigrated it. We've eroded it. And our nation is, and culture, and really all of human nature, is accepting something less than your design. We do not claim to pat ourselves on the back because we are doing well. We are not self-righteous. But we desperately want to imitate you. And as Jesus said to his disciples, follow me. We want to follow you. We want your spirit to fill us completely with this light that will change everything around us, driving out the deeds and the thoughts of darkness. We want our lives under your control. And we want our lives, therefore, to be visible. Light exposing those in darkness. May we be able to show it not by condemnation, but by a genuine love and concern for those around us. Maybe a good moment right now is just to tell God, I'm back on track. I'm taking back the core value of imitating you and following Jesus again. And when you do that, it helps your soul to talk to God and say, Lord, forgive me and accept the forgiveness that Christ has given you through his cross. Father, now we thank you. You're a great father. In Jesus' name, God's people said.